our kids' church. All the little kids, big kids, nursery. If you're in the nursery, you, you can walk down there now. <clears throat> for those who don't know me, my name is Tim Simpson. I'm an elder here at Christ Church. And from time to time, I get the opportunity to preach. And now is one of those times. Um, it's been an incredible privilege uh, to be gifted with these Sunday mornings in front of you all. And it makes me more than a little sad to know that this is likely my last time uh, preaching here, or preaching anywhere, for that matter. Uh, as many of you know, my wife Rona and I will be moving um, to Scotland with our family uh, at the beginning of September. And so, Christ Church, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to Judd, if he's listening, uh, for making space and for encouraging the training up of lay preachers uh, and lay preacher voices in his congregation. And thank you to all of you for your patience and support and listening uh, to those of us who are lacking in experience and still growing in our abilities to preach God's word. Um, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Uh, sermon preparation is a hard thing for me. Um, I always have, start with the best of intentions, but always sort of winds up with, with hair pulling at the end, and I, I, it's very rare for me to feel totally ready. Um, but at the same time, I also recognize that it is an incredibly rewarding experience. Um, and I'm always glad afterwards that I've spent that time in God's word trying to understand it well enough to communicate it to other people. So I really do mean it. I, thank you. Um, <clears throat> anyway, before we get started this morning, why don't, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, please bless our time in your word this morning. Please open our eyes to the message of Galatians and reveal to us the riches of your word. Please gift us with wisdom and understanding through the work of your Holy Spirit, and please help us to take your word to heart, transforming us more and more into the likeness of your son Jesus. We ask these things in his blessed name. Amen. So our text this morning comes from Paul's letter to Galatians. We're stepping out of our Philippians series for a couple of weeks while Judd's on vacation. Um, and Paul is writing to the church of Galatia in, uh, in order to correct, basically in order to correct a false gospel that's being spread among them, where the false teachers claim uh, their faith in Christ must be supplemented by adherence to portions of the Mosaic law, especially uh, circumcision for Gentile believers. And Paul begins Galatians by rebuking them there's, there's not a lot of cheerful thanksgiving for the Galatians. He rebukes them. <clears throat> and he, he rebukes them specifically for abandoning the gospel that he initially shared with them. He then goes on to establish his credentials as an apostle, capable of teaching the gospel message that he first proclaimed to them. And then he spends um, the majority of chapters 3 and 4 arguing that justification comes and has always come through faith and does not come through observance of the Mosaic law. And here in chapters 5 and the beginning of 6, since we're getting close to the end of the letter and since it looks like Paul is mostly done talking about justification by faith, we might expect that Paul would turn and fully shift gears and focus more on what's next. What should the Galatians do next? And he does eventually do that. 
um, in the middle of chapter 6. But before he gets there, he seems to sort of go off on this tangent in order to pen the passage that we're considering today. But before we dig uh, too far into the details, let's stand together um, and let's read the text so that it's fresh in our minds. So please stand with me for the reading of God's word. So Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcerer, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And, there is, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. The reading of God's word. <clears throat> so as you can see, or as you've heard, there's a lot going on in this passage. And you may even wonder... Uh, whether or not there's too much going on in this passage for a single sermon. And that's, that's probably fair. We could easily focus in on one or two verses and do a perfectly acceptable sermon that way. And this passage is popular enough that many of you have probably heard sermons like that, focusing on either the works of the flesh or the fruits of the Spirit or possibly both or some other part of our passage. But there are also times when it can be helpful to zoom out a bit, to try to see the bigger picture, because it can help us to understand how a passage fits into the larger context and how it draws from that context to make its point. So the first thing that I want you to see this morning is that, perhaps despite its initial appearances, this passage can be seen uh, as one cohesive single unit. And to do that, we're going to make a little chart of the structure, uh, paying attention to certain themes. And so I've, I've got a slide for that. I thank Emily for putting this together. It's already really small, so I'm going to walk through it. But what I want you to note is the shape of it, right? <clears throat> so it begins with warnings against the flesh and encouragement to love and serve one another. The law is fulfilled through the love of the neighbor. Now I want you to jump all the way down to the bottom. 
bearing one another's burdens, serving in love, a warning against temptation, and fulfilling the law of Christ, and then a warning against self-deception. The beginning and the end are probably the, the, the squidgiest parts of this structure. Um, it's not everyone agrees, not all scholars agree exactly on where the concentric structure begins, but everyone is in agreement, almost everyone is in agreement that there is a structure there. And as we get further into it, I hope that you see that there's definitely something here. In verse 515, there's a warning against biting and attacking each other. And then in 526, a warning against provoking and envying one another. In 516, there's a, there's a command to walk by the Spirit against the flesh. And in 525, there's keep in step or to walk with the Spirit since we live by it. In 517, there's an assurance that the Spirit is against the flesh. And in 524, there's an assurance that the flesh uh, against the flesh for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 5.18, those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. In 5.23, no law stands against the fruit of the Spirit. And then finally, at the very center of the concentric structure, you see the works of the flesh contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> so there's this concentric structure of sorts where Paul is bringing in certain ideas and themes in a certain order, and then he's more or less reversing that order as he writes about those things again. The first bit and the last bit I said are the most fuzzy, but there are definitely some, there's definitely something going on here, and it seems intentional. <clears throat> and what we see at the very center is this explicit comparison between the flesh and the spirit. And as you may recall, with these sorts of concentric structures, if you find them in the Bible, especially if you find them in the Old Testament, there's an emphasis on the thing that's in the center. <clears throat> Lots of psalms are laid out in concentric uh, structures. Um, the, uh, the story of Noah seems to have a concentric stru structure to it. There's lots of examples. Um, What it looks like from this is that Paul is intentionally highlighting this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And if this is the first time you've ever paid you know, much attention to the structure of this passage, uh, you may be scratching your head and you may be wondering why Paul would do this after making his point about justification by faith. Because you know, isn't that sort of the whole point of his, his writing to the Galatians is he's, he's refuting this idea about, you know, what is what justifies you? Is it by the law, or is it you know obedience to the law, or is it through justification by faith? So why would he write this? Um, what, what you know? What does how does this comparison sort of fit into that discussion? Well, I'm glad you asked, <laughs> because this is not the first time that Paul has made this kind of thematic comparison in Galatians, though it may be the most prominent. In fact, Galatians has three major sections where Paul appears to make direct comparisons between various themes in the letters. So we have this one. We have 5.13 to 26, which is the spirit and the flesh. We also have uh, 3.15 to 29, which is where Paul is talking. He's comparing the promise versus the law, that is, the covenant of Abraham versus the covenant of Moses. And we have 4.21 to 31, which is... Uh, the promise versus flesh. So the promise versus law, the promise versus flesh, and then the spirit versus flesh. Um, 
and we'll see as we go on that the Spirit is actually the Spirit of promise. And so it's sort of the, the promised Spirit versus the flesh. So promise features in sort of all of them. And so you can see this sort of progression where the promise of Abraham after Christ is given by, in, by, through the Spirit, and the law is insufficient to restrain the flesh. So the comparison is initially with the law, but the law is insufficient, and so then we start talking about the flesh. So this is the progression. So rather than thinking about this passage as sort of an interesting aside or tangential inserted between his argument for theological, you know, his theological argument for justification by faith and his encouragement towards faith and good works, we should instead see this passage as kind of the culmination of Paul's argument. And what's going on here is that Paul is likely anticipating his opponent's biggest objection. Namely, if Christians don't require a strict obedience to the Mosaic law, if it's just justification by faith, isn't sin going to run rampant in Christian communities? Won't fleshly desires win out against the freedom that Christians enjoy? The Greeks of the day knew better than to have no rules, right? They had their philosophy and their ethical principles, which they were so fond of, and those were the things that they took pride in and, and that they claimed to guide them. And the Jews had their Torah, they had their law. And so Paul is sort of combining these two ideas, and he's saying, well, it's like, if it's, not, if it's not the ethical principles, and it's not the law, then what is it? Right? And it's a good, practical question. And Paul has a strong answer for it, namely, the Holy Spirit. But I think it'll be fruitful for us to dig into the whole answer and at least kind of attack it from multiple angles to see sort of the fullness of it. And I want to do this because I think this remains, I know this remains a good, practical question today. How should we be ordering our lives? And we can just punt, and we can parrot the, the Bible's answers here, right? We can walk by the Spirit, and we can keep in step with the Spirit, and we wouldn't be wrong when we said that, but what does Paul mean by those things? Can we give any specifics? What does that look like? It should be pretty clear from the passage that it's got something to do with loving our neighbor and bearing one another's burdens, but why do those things go hand in hand? What does the Holy Spirit have to do with love? And so that's our big guiding question for the morning. How should Christians order their lives? And we're going to approach the answer um, in three different ways. And eventually, I hope we're going to build towards Paul's ultimate answer uh, that he has here in Galatians. So the, the first, first answer that we're going to look at um, is from verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving your neighbor as yourself, you could say, is sort of the historic Jewish answer to this question. How should we live our lives? We see it show up in Matthew 22 to 34, sorry, 22, 34 to 40, um, which is when Jesus is asked, which is the greatest commandment from the law? I think we've, I think we've got this passage. Hope, I hope we got this passage, yep. Um, so his answer is, is twofold. Matthew, uh, Matthew 22. Where do you get that one? 
I actually don't have this one in here. Right. Whoop. 30, sorry, 30, uh, nope, Matthew 22, 34 to 40. Oh, yes, so keep going. You're right, so this is, um, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test. Sorry, it just started in the middle of the page, and I was really lost. Okay, keep going. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus is emphasizing this same commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. So it makes some sense then that Paul is pairing this commandment with the idea of fulfilling the law. Because if all the law can depend upon it and the, and the commandment from the Shema, the, um, which is Deuteronomy 6.5, um, then uh, certainly this is something that is worthy of this idea of you know, fulfilling the law, fulfilling the whole law. But on the other hand, you might think, based on the rest of Galatians, that this is a funny thing to do, Right? This is a funny thing to do for Paul to emphasize fulfillment of the law when he's just argued that justification comes through faith and not by obedience to the law. So what, uh, what is going on here? Th- like, this is the sort of thing that makes some New Testament scholars actually say, ah, Paul is being in- inconsistent here. Paul is contradicting himself, right? But what they're failing to account for is Paul's use of rhetoric, or the potential for Paul's use of rhetoric. Paul is likely saying here, in effect, in your newfound freedom, do you really desire to meet the obligations of the law? Then hold off on circumcision for a moment and start with one of the most foundational commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ask yourself, how are you doing in that regard? If, in fact, you are attacking your Gentile Christian brothers because they're not circumcised like you, or because they're not observing the same dietary restrictions as you, you may need more help than the people you're attacking. But that aside, that, that use of rhetoric aside, let's talk for a minute about the context that we, that we get when we look at Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, where this commandment to love your neighbor comes from, is a fascinating chapter of the Bible. It's found within the so-called holiness code of Leviticus. And it starts off in verse, Leviticus 19.2, starts off the chapter with this introductory statement. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So it's in the holiness code, and the introductory statement is, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the theme here is definitely holiness. Additionally, chapter 19 is bounded on both sides, chapter 18 and 20, by chapters which contain prohibitions against the unethical practices of the nations that surrounded Israel. So chapter 19 really stands out as a unit, and all the commands of chapter 19 seem to be motivated by God's call for Israel to imitate him in his holiness. Don't be like the other people. Be like me. Be set apart. Be different. And if you're... if you read up on Leviticus 19.18 specifically, 
you're bound to run into some scholars who want to compare it with Leviticus 19.34, which is where, still in Leviticus 19, where the Israelites are further commanded to love the stranger who dwells among them, who sojourns among them. And they want to do this comparison because a really weird thing is going on in the Hebrew. And it's, it's a love commandment in both passages, but in both love commandments, the verb for love gets a weird preposition. It doesn't happen anywhere else except for these two places. Maybe, uh, I think there's, there's one other place, but it's used in the negative. Um, it's, it's a negative sense. <clears throat> I think it's in Chronicles. Sorry, I'm forgetting it. I didn't write it down. Um, but this is important because it's, it's, so, it's so different. And the commandment is to love the strange, love the neighbor as yourself and love the stranger as yourself. And so the, the, the phrasing is almost identical between these two things. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is that um, in both cases, the Israelites are commanded to not merely love another, but to love the other as themselves. And then unlike in 1918, the call to love the stranger in 1934 is given an extra motivational statement. And it's, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay? So, I know this is a lot, but so what can we make of all this? The first thing to note is that neighbor here, in the context of ancient Israel, should really be understood as fellow Israelite because it would have been really unusual for that not to be the case. And then there's an interesting argument that happens once you realize that from the lesser to the greater. God had compassion on the Israelites when they were strangers to him. So they should have compassions on the strangers that dwell among them. And if they should be compassionate to these strangers, even to the point to loving them as themselves, which is pretty extreme, how much more should the Israelites show love and compassion to their own Israelite brothers and sisters, those who belong to God's chosen and holy people, and to whom they are likely related by blood? So what I want for us to see when we're looking at the Levitical commandment to love your neighbor, and Paul's use of it here, is that it's commanding a specific kind of love. It's commanding a love that is rooted in God's call for his holy people to imitate him in his holy love for them, especially in his compassionate love for them when they were on the margins of society. It is a love that was holy, set apart, different from the practices of the surrounding nations. And if this clarification of the kind of love that Paul is talking about here hasn't made you a little bit uncomfortable yet, let me push a little harder. Because it's not, by nature, a comfortable kind of love. Comfort doesn't really appear to enter into the commandment. It's a proactive and other-centered love. It's not based on sentiment. It's not selfish in its designs. It's not transactional. It's a love with only one boundary. Love them as yourself. And do you remember in the story of Esther, as an aside, do you remember in the story of Esther how the king held up his scepter to Esther when she walked into the room and pardoned her life? But his, what did he say? He said, he said, ask me for anything up to half my kingdom. 
and you shall have it. That's the kind of as-yourself love we're talking about here, right? Because anything less, you're not treating them as an equal, right? Up to half my kingdom. It makes, it makes me uncomfortable, like in my chest. And when Jesus answered the follow-up question to who is my neighbor, the follow-up to Matthew 22, when he, asked the, when, he answered the, when he answered the follow-up question, who is my neighbor, he answered with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he was clearly trying to push back against the idea that only fellow Israelites could be neighbors. Because at one point, that may have been true. But in Jesus' day, that was no longer true because it was much more multicultural. And so, as Christians, we don't get to just say that our neighbors are other believers. That would be the modern equivalent, right? The Israelites are the faithful chosen people. Today, Christians are the faithful chosen people. And so, really, our neighbors are just Christians, right? Jesus won't allow for that. But perhaps who we should think of as our neighbors, is anyone who's willing to treat us as their neighbors, showing the same kind of compassion and love for us that the Samaritan showed in the parable. But that's probably enough for our first answer. Let's move on to answer number two. The second answer to our question comes from chapter 6, verse 2. Here it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the second time in our passage that Paul talks about the fulfillment of some kind of law. This time, though, instead of just fulfilling the law, it's fulfilling the law of Christ. So how should we understand the difference? Well, when Paul uses the term law, he's most likely being consistent with the rest of his uses in Galatians, and he's most likely talking about the Mosaic law. That is what he means when he says it. He's, it's, it's, the tra- it's the Greek translation of the word Torah. It can mean the first five books of the Bible. It can also mean the teachings or the instructions. It can also mean specifically the Mosaic legal code, and that's probably what he's got in mind here because that's what he's been talking about. But as you read through Galatians 5 and 6, you may find it odd that Paul would write about fulfilling the law rather than writing about obeying the law or keeping the law. And that's probably because for most Christians today, when we hear the word fulfill, we immediately think of the fulfillment of prophecy and not necessarily the fulfillment of the law. So what does that mean? What does that mean to fulfill the law? Well, we know from the Jewish Talmud that there were at least a number of Jewish scholars from around the time of Jesus who would talk about fulfilling the law in the sense of correctly interpreting and satisfying its requirements, including making all the necessary sacrifices necessary to absolve sin through the appropriate temple ceremonies. Essentially, it's fulfilling the law for some Jewish scholars was sort of like being a good Jew, being a faithful, knowledgeable, wise-in-the-word Jew, interpreting, applying the law correctly. So we're not required necessarily to read too much into Paul's use of fulfillment here. He may have just been using the language of his opponents. He may have just been using the language common to his day. But he also may have been making a reference to Christ's own claim that he'd come to fulfill the law 
as we see recorded in Matthew 5.17. Or he may have been referring to uh, a well-known teaching of Christ, um, since those were all well-recorded. And in fact, we see this pairing of the idea of fulfillment of the law and loving your neighbor show up in two other letters. So not just in Matthew, we see uh, both Jesus' preference for uh, you know, the Levitical commandment and also uh, his claim to fulfill the law, um, claim to have come to fulfill the law. But we also see in James 2.8 and in Romans 13.10 um, this idea of fulfillment being paired with um, the uh, fulfilling, uh, sorry, with um, loving your neighbor, fulfilling the law. But the crucial difference here in, in two, uh, 6 2 is that it's now the law of Christ that's being fulfilled. And it's not simply the law. And so, what does that mean? What is the law of Christ? And uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a one-trick pony, and the answer is, it's a tricky question, right? And it's one that divides scholars. So some people might say, it's another way of saying the Torah, just this time as fulfilled by Christ. Or, it's a subset of Torah, which somehow still applies to Christians. Or, it's the ethical teachings of Jesus, such as the Sermons on the Mount. Or, it's a more specific commandment, such as the love commandment found in John 13, 34. Love one another as I have loved you. Or perhaps it's some combination of these things. But one of the biggest clues that we have for this comes from the phrase that's found with it. Bear one, another, bear one another's burdens. And here we see again this idea of, of imitating Christ, imitating God. Because clearly, um, Christ bore our burdens. We imitate him in his loving sacrifice for us. New Testament professor James Dunn uh, makes a strong case that of all the theoretical options, the imitation of Christ is almost certainly part of what it means, uh, what Paul means by the law of Christ. Even if there are other aspects. Because even if we should understand the ethical teachings, the Torah interpretation, and the specific commandments to be part of the law of Christ, thanks to Christ's nature, we know that he would have also lived those things out himself in his own life because he lived with perfect integrity. And we know this because we know that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He was perfectly obedient to the commandments, ceremonial, moral, civil, or however you want to break them up down. But he also, in addition to that, filled the prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming Messiah. He was and is the covenant representative of Israel. He's the promised seed of Abraham. And as such, he is the inheritor of the promised blessing. So the promise back in Galatians 3, he's the one who inherited it. And in that, sen in that sense, he is the only one to whom it belongs. But by the grace of God, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin, trusting in him, and united to him by his Holy Spirit, and they become co-heirs of the blessing of eternal life and members and co-participants in, uh, in his corporate body on earth, that is the church. And part of that trust and part of that co-participation 
is the grateful obedience to his teachings and the imitation of his life. Now, obviously, we are not called to imitate him in all things. We are not called to be the covenant representative of Israel. We are not called to be king or high priest or to be a prophet like Moses or Elijah. But we are called to love God and to love our neighbor, not for the sake of righteousness, since Christ has already secured that for us, but for the glory of God. So for those who are wondering uh, what it's like for the Simpson family these days, um, during our downtime, what, what, what downtime we have, I'm pleased to report that things are much chattier than they were even as recently as, as six months ago. There's always chat going on. And for most part, I mean that as a good thing, a wonderful thing even. Like when I see Rory... Like, when I see Rory actually engaging and responding to his younger brother, which is not a given, or when one of the boys is upset or hurt and the other one asks what's wrong and asks if he's okay. And of course, sometimes that extra chat is not so good. Like when I'm disciplining one of the boys or when Rona's disciplining one of the boys, and the other boy decides to back us up, right? And adds his two cents. As a child, it's good to be responsive, engaging, and compassionate towards your sibling. That's an acceptable way for Rory or Fraser to imitate their parents. But it's not either child's role or responsibility to discipline their sibling. That's my job, or Rona's job, or sometimes another adult's job. If it's not something we expect or desire, the child to imitate. And so just like a child imitating a parent as co-heirs with Christ and co-participants in his mission, we seek to obey Christ's instructions and to imitate him in the aspects of his life that are appropriate for us. And after digging into point two, <clears throat> you, you may have noticed uh, we see a lot of similarities to the answer for point one. Um, so it's, it's loving your neighbor, and it's fulfilling the law of Christ, but fulfilling the law of Christ looks like bearing the burdens, and both of them are rooted in this idea of, of imitation. So basically, I've just told you to imitate God twice, okay? So what's different about them? Well, the first point <clears throat> is rooted in the Old Testament, and so you can say that it's, it's an imitation of God the Father, right? And the second point is rooted in the person of Christ, and so it's imitating Jesus. But they're both God. And so in both senses, you're, you're, you're still called to imitate God. But definitely in the second one, the human element is more apparent. And part of that is that when we realize that burdens are not necessarily always physical. And so loving your neighbor and bearing the burdens of your brother often goes deeper than just what's on the outside. You actually have to know them. Sometimes you have to be known by them before they trust you enough to know them. And so there's relationship there. It's personal. 
So how else can we answer our big question? The third and final answer to our big question of how we ought to live comes from chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So far, both of our answers have focused on loving God and on imitating Him. First, God the Father, and then God the Son, but both of these, in a sense, are sort of, we'll say, limited in the sense that they are done as a third party. It's done in imitation of another who we know through God's word. And so Paul has a more immediate and practical answer here. And I think this is the emphasis of his response to the Galatians. Walk by the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. It's 5.16 and 5.25. To walk by the Holy Spirit is to be guided by him and to be empowered to move because of him. And we can trust that if we are looking for it, there will be times when his guidance and his power will be clear. And we can know that it is his prompting and his power if it's consistent with Scripture. And if it points to Christ and it glorifies him. But more to Paul's point here, and more fitting with Paul's choice of verb, because he uses a, the word he, the verb he uses here uh, is stoikeo, um, which is the Greek word that sort of means marching in a line. And really it comes down to uh, the idea of, of uh, elements in a, in a column, right, or in a row. It's the fundamental elements. And so uh, John Petroff's not here, but like the, uh, the Greek word for like the actual periodic table, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's something like chemistry stoikeia or something like that. Like, <clears throat> anyway, I thought that was interesting. So, <clears throat> but, but what it means is it... it it's the same word that gets used earlier in Galatians when he's talking about the, the elements of the world, right? And it is, it is what is used for the philosophical elements or principles that get used in Greek culture. And so there's sort of a play on word going on, a play on words going on here, where he's using this word to say, like, well, you want to order your life? Order it this way. Right? You, want, you want some principles for your life? Use this principle, the principle of the Holy Spirit. But it also makes sense because uh, in Paul's larger argument, because uh, there are times um, you know, when we're not ordering our lives, not according to the ethical principles of the Greek philosophers and not according to the Mosaic law, but according to the will of the Holy Spirit and his sanctifying work that's going on in our own lives. And while this may be, to me, this is a more practical answer. You, you, you may not see that. But it seems like a more practical answer, but in a lot of ways, it's also a more difficult answer because it's impossible to put it into effect on our own since it's relational. Fundamentally, it's relational. It requires not only actively discerning God's will and seeking his guidance for opportunities to love your neighbor and to bear one another's burden. Those are sort of the first two answers that we had. But it also requires you knowing yourself and recognizing 
at least some of the work that God is doing in your own life so that you can find ways to cooperate with it. And you've all probably heard, you know, of WWJD. What, what would Jesus do? This is effectively WWTHSHMD. What would, what would the Holy Spirit have me do? Another difference for this answer is there's less, em- less emphasis on the active side of things. Because we can get really caught up in the doing. The looking and the seeking and the doing. And one of the emphases of this passage, you notice, is that it's the works of the flesh. It's what, it's what the flesh does, what the flesh produces, like accomplishes. But what is, it, what is it for the spirit? It's the fruit. And what do you do for fruit? You plant it. And what do you do? You wait. Sometimes you wait a long time. It's more to do with what God is doing in our lives and trying to be aware of that. So practically, you know, what what does this look like? It means that we're aware of the Holy Spirit. It means that we're seeking out the Holy Spirit's guidance and his will as we seek to honor God in our actions. But because the Holy Spirit also continually points to Christ, especially Christ's sacrifice and the glory of his resurrection and ascension, if we're walking by the Spirit, our lives should also point to the grace of God and to Christ's sacrifice. So we can ask ourselves, do others see the grace of God in my life? Am I gracious towards others? Do I allow others to see the areas of my life where God has been gracious to me? So those are our three answers for today. What, how should the Christian live, its life, live his life, live their life? Don't leave anybody out. <clears throat> how should the Christian live their life? And I think Paul here uh, is interested in the obedience to the law, to the fulfillment of the law, insofar as it is in accordance with what Christ wants. So we have loving the neighbor, and it's a love that's rooted in imitation of God and his holiness and his, his compassion for marginalized people. And it's It's a love that fulfills the law of Christ by bearing the burdens uh, of our fellow brothers and sisters, knowing them and being known by them, and and seeking out ways in which we can serve them in love. And also, it's an awareness of the Holy Spirit. It's an awareness of the Holy Spirit and how he prompts us in day-to-day activities where he guides us actively, and it's also an awareness of what the Holy Spirit is already at work at in our lives and structuring our lives, ordering our lives in such a way that we cooperate with it, with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, Paul's message to the Galatians, and we thank you, Lord, for the gift 
of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you um, fill us with your Holy Spirit today. We pray that you, you, you pour it out upon us and help us to feel its, his presence. We pray, we pray, Lord, that you um, go with us this week. We pray that you help us to seek opportunities to love our neighbor, to bear one another's burdens, and to listen to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and to make room for the Holy Spirit in our life. We say all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. As we are united with Christ through the Holy Spirit, so also are we united with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. So communion, then, is a time when we come together, unified in one corporate body, and together we remember Christ's sacrifice and his death. We look forward to that day when we might be reunited with him in body again, to break bread and taste the fruit of the vine together with him. In Luke 22, we read, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it, eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We here... Um, we here at Christ Church practice open communion. So if you place your faith in the salvation, uh, if you place the faith of your salvation in Jesus Christ, we welcome you to join with us in this time of communion this morning. So as you're ready, come, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, join us in remembering Christ and his love for us.